the best example I can see is that if you're a fab white male, you are more likely to apply for a job if you only have one qualification, right? So if you're a person of color or a black person or, or an AFAB person, you're most likely to apply if you have the most about them, like you can have 75% of them more. And I think that learning that I was able to really focus on how I worded my jobs saying, look, we want, we want people of color. We want black people. We want LGBTQ people. We want women to apply. Even if you have one qualification, I put that everywhere all my job lessons and you probably have to see it like two or three times because I want to make sure it really hits people that we're not looking for you know the one perfection because it I mean I've looked at some of my stuff before and if I can give you metrics on when it comes to hiring when I put a job listing without that before we did that we had about a good 80 percent of people that were applying were like white straight men so it's interesting to see how it's changed just by wording in the very beginning. And I think that's part of doing the work. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. All right, uh, Drew. So I know you as uh, an HR people leader and content creator, but could you let our listeners uh, know a little bit about who you are and what you do? So my name is Drew Forbes. I am the director of people and culture at Equal Pride. And for those who don't know Equal Pride, it's because they're actually the parent company of Out Magazine, The Advocate, Out Traveler, and Plus Magazine. And The Advocate's about 56 years old now, I want to say, and Out Magazine just turned 30. So it's a very old LGBTQ company. We come from Legacy. Uh, I'm extremely grateful that I'd be a part of there. I do all things HR. And then on my personal stuff, I talk about trauma, how to live past it and go through it and how to create a healthy work culture within the entire community. Cause it's extremely hard to do, especially when you're a trans man in my position. So. That's awesome. Um, I really liked one of the statements that you have in your about section on LinkedIn. I'm a force to be reckoned with regarding creativity and personality. Um, for our creative DEI listeners, how do you access the creative aspects of your personality? I feel like you just have it innately, but what's your what's your take? And everybody looks at me and they're like, oh, you have tattoos, you're shiny. And I'm like, yay, I know, I'm shiny, awesome. But no, when it comes to creativity, <laughs> hiring people, so DEI is extremely important. And I am the person that believes in if you're going to talk to talk, you have to walk the walk. So another thing that our company even does, like just kind of give a segue, is we help people, for example, like Google, Target, things of that nature, create ads and commercials even that actually represent DE&I. One of my favorite campaigns, I think was last year with a bubbly campaign, it was like called Out Night, uh, Night Out. And it was really neat because we had local talent from like trans uh, women, uh, drag queens, uh, lesbians. We had everybody of all names, shakes and colors. And it's really important for us. So when it comes to hiring, I want to portray what we actually do. And my biggest question 
I always like to do. It's extremely interesting because people get amused by it. My first and foremost, I'm like, look, we're a gay company. We're owned by gay people. Why do you want to work for us? Because I don't want you. And if they're like, oh, I'm okay with that. It's like a red flag, but it's, it's being creative with questions. Like we don't believe in perfection. I don't believe in perfection. I got this job. I wasn't perfect. I came from mostly a sales and marketing background. I kind of plateaued for a while because I had to get an education and the CEO at the time did take, you know, a big risk on me, which of course is they can tell it's paid off. But with that in mind, I do every aspect I can to bring in, you know, black people, people of color, women into our job from my job listing postings, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen a job listing posting or anybody sees one, but from me, it says, I encourage you to apply. If you have one qualification, I encourage you to apply. We can make anybody grow. I really believe that. And I mean, Grammarly is my best friend. So I know that I probably had an error in my cover letter of some sort, but she still looked past it because she's like, look, you had the drive, the passion, which is good. And our new CEO says the same thing. He says, the way I work for people and the way I communicate, if I find the energy, that's how I use my creative aspect and I'll sell them to the person that we need in position. So it seems like you're just passionate about the transferable skills piece, especially when it comes to thinking about a person's whole career journey. Do you feel like it, it's because you um, you identify with with that, like having not necessarily having a linear path and things like that? I actually can. Uh, so to give like a personal background, I didn't start mm -hmm. transitioning until about a few years ago. And even my partner, my amazing wife, when we first started dating, which is almost um, six years ago, actually, our first date would be October 5th, 2016. <laughs> um, so coming up on that anniversary okay. of first day, but she told me within Congrats. our first day, if I ever wanted to, thank you, if I ever wanted to transition that I could, and I panicked. I was like, no, 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 I'm the closest you'll ever get to. And I kind of struggled. And learning to accept who I was and not not wanting to fit that cookie cutter mold, because I never really did. I grew up with hippies as parents. Uh, um, that's not an exaggeration. Um, I grew up around drugs, alcohol. So my idea of rebellion was going into the military. <laughs> um, I didn't last, unfortunately, too long in the military. I did hurt myself um, pretty early on. So I like hurt my knee and stuff and I, I went home. But the things that it taught me was that if I wanted to be good at anything, I had to push for it. And even though I tried different avenues, I mean, I probably had 15 different career jobs to figure out what I wanted when I finally found it I dove head first and seeing that I went through something like that as a person who is you know very different and has gone through a lot I'm also autistic so and ADHD so with having the neurodivergency the trans stuff and you know it's just I I don't know I guess it's if I can do it I know other people can they just need somebody to believe in them and that's what I'm here for to believe in that person the best example is I met two amazing human beings in an interview that unfortunately didn't fit that role, but because I absolutely positively loved them so much. And so did the interview, um, so did some of the supervisors. We actually eventually found ways to bring them on into the company in a different aspect that we thought that they could grow better in. And they actually are, they're succeeding better in that aspect. So that's kind of what we strive for, or at least I personally strive for. That's amazing. You know, one, one of my friends, he actually uh, is a leader at 
uh, multiple organizations and I said, hey, man, what is the key to um, growth at an organization? And uh, he said, it's communication skills. Do you believe that? And if so, how long do you feel like it takes for a person to kind of get ramped up in an organization and, and really start to develop their voice? I'm going to be completely blunt. This company that I came into before, because we did get bought out to be under ownership in the last few months again, but they had a very bad HR person for me. And it took them, I want to say a long time to recover and to be willing to have somebody in that position again. So when I came in, I knew I was going to have to work with everybody very tentatively and just let them listen and hear what my goals are and then show them. And so once I did that, I think it took, I want to say almost a year for people to trust me, like completely trust me. But I've also, when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I think so when the communication also comes with accountability, I know that people always believe like, you know, like, oh, well, knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is not. Knowledge is not power. What power is actively using it. So it's the activations. So when you're communicating and you're saying, hey, I'm going to do this and you have that knowledge and then you do it because you actually power, people are going to trust you. So I think now a minimum is a year. And I can see that some of the people in our company have grown so much within the last year, just from listening, communicating. Our sales team has gone above and beyond. Actually, I think we're now one of the highest LGBTQ revenating companies out there in the world because we just listen and grow and help one another. So yes, communication is best. And I keep weeding it out. I, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. I know, like I tell people, look, I, I was like, let's not curse here. And they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, I know, I know it sounds weird, but I promise you, we want to create a safe place and you can do stuff like that on your spare time, but let's keep it very professional and concise. I also hate the term family because I feel like families are dysfunctional and teams are growth. So I also use different terminologies with that. So that's part of my communication. And it's cool to see how, well, hear your thought process on how you review other people's talent too. Cause I think that's, that's important. That's awesome. While you were developing your book, uh, what was one of the, one of the most eye-opening moments while you were writing uh, Slamming Bricks and, and why? So I worked with somebody, so it's actually a bunch of us who got published in Slamming Books, and mm -hmm. the three is absolutely amazing human being, so it's a second edition that they did, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. Kind of what it is, is, um, so I have a book on autism for children that's but it was published, and it was uh, recognized in the autism parenting magazine globally which was really kind of trippy slamming brooks was really raw and hard for me to even want to be in so when i actually wrote to avery and i was like okay like and avery's only selecting certain people to be in the book with them it's kind of like i'm nervous because i'm talking about something that's nobody's ever talked about and it's about like queer anthology so what you can see is a lot of trans women are a lot more open and a lot more honest about their journeys and what they go through. And they tend to be more expressive with art and expressive with things than a lot of trans men don't. And there's many reasons for that. Some trans men want to be stealth, which is, you know, they want to just be identified as male and they don't want to talk about it in their transition ever. So that's all they have. And then you have people like me who want to talk about it because people, I didn't know why people like me existed and I feel like representation matters. So I wrote a poem called He, Him, and it's a very interesting, long um, slam poetry. And it was 
really intense and I worked on it for a while. And once I sent it over, I was surprised to find out that I was actually going to be the first one into the poems that was accepted. And I've been hearing a lot of really good feedback about it. Actually, the book is coming in today. My wife ordered a copy of it, so it was coming in today. And I get to work with a lot of other people. So we have, you know, other LGBTQ people, we have bisexual women, we have bisexual men, we have, you know, trans women, all the people like that. So I talked about the erasure that everybody's scared of. So right now there's a lot of issues with women's rights. And then people think it's solely women's rights, but it's not because lack of a better term, I, I am male. It's just really what it is. And I have genetic markers that prove it, but I also could still technically get pregnant by an assault. So it's also an A, so we call it more of an AFAB issue. But one thing I've been seeing is people are really nervous about trans men because they feel like they're erasing people. So part of that journey in my, in my anthology is talking about how there is no erasure of something we never were and how we try to be exactly who we are, how we fight for everything. Like I fought to be topless. I, I spent over $10,000 on top surgery. Um, I had to pay for it out of pocket. I saved up the money up front. It, it's being open and honest about everything. And I'm even, and like, even for saying that I talk about how I'm a force to be reckoned with creatively. I paint, I sculpt, I draw, I do things of that nature. And I decided to even put more trans things in my work. And because of slamming bricks with Avery and Rihanna and all these other amazing people I'm with, I feel like it's given me more courage to put more trans artwork out there which is extremely nerve-wracking, but I'm still doing it. I'm, I'm trying my best to make sure I'm open and honest about it. So what's your creative process like? Are, are you um, like, hey, I need to burn the sage before I start writing? Like, what's your... Gosh. Um, so I'm going to be honest. Uh, first and foremost, it's Adderall. Um, I'm very much ADD. <laughs> um, it took me... So I was first diagnosed when I was nine and I was in denial for over 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think it had to do with the fact that they put me on Ritalin when I was a kid and I got really sick. And um, that was really hard for my father because he was a single father because unfortunately, you know, like, like I said, I grew up with trauma. So my, my mother passed when I was really young due to a domestic violence situation with her boyfriend. So I was solely raised by my dad. And he was very ADD too. So watching him and his creative process kind of started mine. And it's very similar. As much as I don't get along with my father, I don't speak to my dad. I'm actually pretty much estranged for, most, for the most part from my father. But he had a very similar process. It's um, when you start feeling it, you start just doing it kind of a situation. But he would try to make sure if he had an idea, he wrote it down. So I started mm. doing that again because for a while there I wasn't. And I have, I think it's called Evernote. I actually absolutely love that because it's on my yeah. computer. It's on my phone. I can do audio, visual. Um, an example I can give you. So I'm very visual. I can create, I know a lot of people can't see um, what I'm about to show you, but um, I can describe it. So this is a human head and bust that first attempt of creating a human head and bust out of clay. And I learned it from doing a visual video because taking the time and understanding it, because I know it takes about 10,000 hours to master anything. So you got to actually practice. Mm -hmm. but I'm very visually stimulated. I wrote an amazing story by seeing this gentleman sitting down and actually talking to a humble vet. Like that just moved me. So I took this picture of the situation 
And then I wrote it, but I have to sit down when I feel it. And then I put my headphones on and there's no music, no nothing. I have officially trained myself that when I have my headphones on, I can zone into the work. But if I don't have my medication, unfortunately, I don't believe that everybody needs medication, but unfortunately I do, then it's a little harder for me to focus. But I find if I just take out the most of distractions as much as possible and put something on that I'm comfortable with, like Buffy or Charmed or X-Files, I can listen <laughs> yeah. to that while doing my artwork and it will never distract me. I mean, that's how I got through college, uh, honestly, because like, I was a, a late bloomer student. I graduated last year with my bachelor's. And most of the time I got through my homework by doing the same thing, like Buffy, X-Files, Bones, <laughs> Charmed in the background. That's awesome. Um... <laughs> I love that process because um, I know everybody has their own. That's that's beautiful. Um, you know, when it comes to DEI, I think a lot of our um, work is around systems and changing the systems. Um, is there a, a challenge that you've seen come up throughout your career in terms of that? And, and how what what solutions have you tried to develop in order to combat that? So there was a time before me where um, Equal Pride, I think, was before that was known as Pride Media or Here Media, and they used to have a hashtag called Outside White. So, if anybody actually knows the history of Out and Advocate, it was very much a white magazine. Um, and you have to kind of combat that. And I know that the CEO that I was hired under, Diane Anderson Minshaw, she's um, she's a woman who is also married to a trans man. So it was kind of interesting. So anytime I had like in the beginning of my transition, if I upset my wife, I'd be like, Diane, what did I do? And then she's like, well, hmm, this is what you did. This is what she's experienced. It's that kind of help. But she was very big on actually doing the diversity work. And that's one of the reasons why she wanted to hire me because I watched a lot of companies. So it's called, they, uh, you know what I told you, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And what that means is for me is a lot of higher ups CEOs, CMOs, things of that nature are not Black people or people of color. To me, that doesn't show that people are doing the work, right? It's just it's just like you're, you're saying, oh, we're hiring Black people, but they're at entry-level jobs, and then you never promote them, or it's like you're hiring Native Americans, same, same process. I don't like that. So when I got the full on thing to start doing once I got all everybody to trust me and I got all my stuff ready and taxes and all that so I have to do every tax profile because remote work is not easy <laughs> there's profiles for my state I started doing my own hiring process and really what I looked for is people I mostly saw potential in and then I did the work I talked to the right people. I analyzed who would be best for the company. I hired the higher ups of people who are diverse, who are more than willing, qualified, more than that. I see people and I understand them for who they are. And I also tried to make sure that when we got the new owners, and one thing I will appreciate, because don't get me wrong, the new owners, yes, they're they're queer, but at the end of the day, they are still white older men. But the one thing I appreciated about them is that. I was being like, hey, you know, like Mark, Mike, I really want to make sure we keep our DEI practices up. So I really want to make sure we have these metrics as I want to make sure that we're constantly growing and showing people what it's like to hire people, whether they're queer or not. I still want to hire, you know, allies, so like black ally, Native American ally, things like that. And without even skipping a beat, they're like, go for it. 
we want to make sure that we don't have a repeat what was back in the day, which was the out so white, which that was really nice to hear. And it is about taking action because I see the best example I can see is that if you're a fab white male, you are more likely to apply for a job if you only have one qualification, right? So if you're a person of color or a black person or, or an AFAB person, you're most likely to apply if you have the most of them, like you can have 75% of them more. And I think that learning that, I was able to really focus on how I worded my jobs, saying, look, we want, we want people of color, we want black people, we want LGBTQ people, we want women to apply, even if you have one qualification. I put that everywhere. All my job lessons and you probably have to see it like two or three times because i want to make sure it really hits people that we're not looking for you know the one perfection because it i mean i've looked at some of my stuff before and if i can give you metrics on when it comes to hiring when i put a job listing without that before we did that we had about a good 80 percent of people that were applying were like white straight men so it's interesting to see how it's changed just by wording in the very beginning and i think that's part of doing the work yeah i totally agree with that um that language matters um so you know our, our dei work as we mentioned is, is really about action um and so after listening to your episode what is one action you would urge listeners to take directly after listening do the work themselves honestly i i mean I'm very white passing. We know there's Hispanic in my family. I was raised by a white man. I was I was raised with a white family. I don't understand what you go through in life. I don't understand what some of my employees go through in a life. But instead of asking them to tell me, I'm gonna do the work. I'm not gonna expect my black employees, my Native American employees, my you know, other trans women even employees to tell me what it is. In fact, my, my wife was actually very good at helping me with this. Um, I think with the book that she got was like White Fragility. I think it really opened my eyes. It's like how really fragile the white company can, white population can be when they're confronted with the inherent racism that they were passed down on. And you think about everything. I'm gonna be completely blunt to people who are listening to this. If you think about your family, there's no way, any, any chance, if you're a white person, that you were not raised with some racial prejudice that was ingrained in you. It hasn't been long enough that things have been good, and they're not good. So, I mean, we've we, recent things in our news show they're not good. So you have to do the work yourself and not expect anybody else to do it for you. Can't end it out any better than that, Drew. Thank you so much for joining. Um, this was an amazing conversation. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Robert, for having me. I greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.